1954, uh, an event took place that would have probably been just a little blip on the radar, except for the fact that there were some college students doing some research who heard about it and decided to investigate it further. It happened in Chicago, and there was a woman in Chicago by the name of Dorothy Martin. Dorothy had come out of an early version of Scientology, Ron Hubbard's kind of religion that he started many decades ago. And Dorothy had convinced herself that she was a, a medium of sorts. She was one who would sit down at the desk and she would start receiving telepathic messages. In fact, she had convinced herself that she had received a telepathic message from the planet Clarion. And an alien on the planet Clarion had told her that on December the 17th, 1954, at midnight, there would come a horrible disaster upon the world. The disaster would continue to unfold not only in 1954 but even worse in 1955 ended up basically destroying the world. Ms. Martin had a handful of people who bought into what she taught. One was a medical doctor, Dr. Charles Langhead or Longhead and, and uh, Dr. Longhead had gotten very interested in UFOs and so when she began to talk about the fact that in the afternoon of December 17th, a spaceship would come down, land in her backyard, and rescue those who had believed her message. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, there were three or four students who were taking a course in psychology who saw the news story and decided that they would do some research on why people believe things like this. And so they infiltrated the movement as being people who believed her and basically observed what had happened. Followers began to quit their jobs, get rid of their possessions, break off relationships with people who didn't believe in the planet Clarion and this message that had come through Ms. Martin. The date finally came, December the 17th. It was supposed to happen that afternoon. The group all gathered at our house, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and nothing happened. She then got a message that it wasn't December 17th. It was December 21st at midnight that the spaceship would land. And so the group met again on December the 21st, and midnight came, and when the clock struck 12 and no spaceship arrived, they were kind of distraught. What had happened? And, and then they noticed there was another clock in the room, said 11.55, and they said, wrong clock. And so they waited for another five minutes, only not to have the spaceship arrive. Like most fortune tellers, she got back, began to think about it, and she said, wrong date. It's not the 21st, it's the 24th of Christmas Eve. And so they met together this time singing Christmas carols. Now I want you all to picture the scene. All kinds of news people out there on the front yard watching them Chris sing Christmas carols because at 12 o'clock it wasn't going to be Santa Claus, it was going to be a spaceship that showed up and take them all away. Spoiler alert didn't happen, okay? 
You probably have already figured that out. They begin then to kind of figure out what, what, what's going on, what's happened here. When a day or two later, Miss Martin came to her group, the ones that were left, because several of them just very quickly disappeared, and said, listen, I've got a message from God, and God has told me because of our faith in the message that was given, because we believed him, he relented from destroying the world. Interesting way out, isn't it? And of course, all you have to do is listen to a story like that, and then all at once you realize, wow, how in the world could anybody, especially a highly educated gentleman, such as the doctor from the University of Chicago, how could they buy into lies like that? Not the last time, not the first time, something like that's happened. How many of y'all remember this guy, Harold Camping? You remember him? You probably will here in a moment. It was, not, uh, excuse me, 2011, and, and in the spring of 2011, Harold Camping, a very well-known California radio evangelist, had claimed that he had figured out finally when the rapture was going to occur. It was going to happen on May the 21st, 2011, 11 years ago. And then a few months later, on October the 21st, the world would come to an end. So everybody needed to get ready. Now, so many people bought into this one that they literally purchased thousands of billboards all across the country like this one right here. Now, if you ever drove up Dickerson Road in 2011, you saw one. There was one between Madison and Gulletsville as you went up Dickerson Road. And it basically said, he's coming May 21st, 2011. The Bible doesn't lie. <laughs> yeah, right. And of course, May 21st came, went, nobody disappeared, no rapture occurred, and Mr. Camping all at once was like Mrs. Martin. Now what am I going to do? And so he stepped back and he began to go back to the Bible, and he came back a few days later and said, I got the date wrong. Really? And so the date instead is in October, October 21st, the rapture is going to happen on the same day the world's destroyed. And, of course, October 21st came, nothing happened. And Mr. Camping, shortly after that, said, I'm a sinner. I lied. I had not discovered the time of the rapture. And, again, the world looked at it, especially those who love to uh, criticize Christianity and say, see, it's all built on lies. Now, now, the reason I bring this up is because of how we finished last week. Last week, the last point we made in the lesson was, was Pontius Pilate as he's responding to Jesus right before the crucifixion, and he asked the question, what is truth? NIV translates it, he retorted. Basically, he, he was, you know, kind of sarcastic. What is truth? But the reality is, in John's Gospel, it plays one of the most important roles in this battle of becoming what God created us to be. I mean, God's created us to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit. But the problem with that is that you've got all of these enemies who are warring against us in that endeavor. Ephesians 2, I want you to notice, here is Paul's description of those before they enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at how he describes us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed, first of all, the ways of the world. 
Notice that. I've got it highlighted. The ways of the world. Then notice also, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So you've got the ways of the world. You've got the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He goes on, the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, satisfying or gratifying the cravings of our flesh. And you see right here the three things that we identified a couple of weeks ago. What is it that Satan uses to attack us? And of course, number one is Satan himself, or as Paul says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, then the flesh, then the world. These are the enemies that every one of us are fighting against, battling against, in our effort to become like Jesus Christ, restored to the image of God. And we've been focusing especially on the first one here for the last couple of weeks, this work of Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as Paul would describe him. Now, going back to the text that Josh led us in, or read to us this morning, as as Jesus is confronting some of the people who had once believed in him, He said, your problem is you belong to your father, the devil. And last week I pointed out, we don't normally think of there being children of God and children of the devil. But Jesus describes the world as being divided in those two groups. But he goes on to describe how that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Notice that language. Why? Because there's no truth in him. And then going to the opposite direction, when he lies, he speaks his native language. He's the liar and the father of lies. And so you have truth on the one hand, you have lies on the other hand. That's what I want us to look at this morning. Going back just a few verses about truth, Jesus says, Listen, if you hold to my teachings, then you're really my disciple, and you'll know the truth. And that truth will set you However, if you turn to the very end of the Bible, you get this kind of statement by John there. I mean, you got John over in his gospel, then you've got John at the end describing what happens to all the liars who have their place in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. Truth? Lies. And we're the ones that decide which ones will believe. Paul, in his description of what happened to mankind from creation to where they were in his day, he said at the very heart of the problem was that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now notice the way he describes. What is it that got us in this mess? What got us here is that the truth about God has been exchanged for a lie that mankind has bought into. Now, I want to go back in just for a moment because as I was preparing this lesson, I thought, boy, you know, if I had to give a definition of the truth, I don't know what definition I would give. That's one of those words that's kind of hard to define. But, But if you go into Webster's and look at how they describe the word truth, here's their definition. The body of real things, events, and facts, the state of being the case. In other words, if it's real. If, if it's a fact you can trust in, then that's what truth is. I like, however, the second definition. The property, and then he puts of a statement, of being in accord with fact or reality. Let me illustrate. If I were to say to you, in my pocket are my car keys, and then I produce them, 
you would say that was a truthful statement. In other words, the reality of my statement corresponded to the reality of my keys being in my pocket. That's what truth is. Truth is simply a proposition that reflects the reality of what the proposition states. Now, why is that important? Because Satan doesn't want us to know the truth. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, which a lot of these ideas for this series came out of, John Mark Comer says on page 7, Our fight with the devil is first and foremost, listen to it carefully, because I think he's spot on. Our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds. Which means that Satan has had control, still has some control, to some degree of our minds. And then notice, from their captivity to lies. And to liberate them with the weapon of truth. In other words, Comer says what's happened to us in our lives is that we have been fed lies. Lies ever since we were just kids. Lies about the world. Lies about our family. Lies about things that we observe in life that we think is one way when in reality there's some other way. And so he says that's the problem we're battling. Go back to Thomas Jefferson author of the Declaration of Independence. He, along with a committee of a few others, but he's the one that actually wrote it. 33, 34 years old. What y'all think about that? A guy that young writing a document that we built our nation upon. But notice what he says. We hold these truths. If you had said to Thomas Jefferson, are truths important? Absolutely. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator, a truth he believed in, with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if you've never studied the writing of the Declaration of Independence, this was the final edition. It went through several drafts. And among the drafts was a paragraph in the Declaration of Independence condemning slavery. But the southern states would not approve it, and so it got X'd out. But it was put in by none other than Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner at Monticello, who remained a slave owner to the day of his death. And you look at it and go, now wait a minute, how can you claim that all men are created equal and at the same time you own slaves? There's the problem we all have. You see, we get taught things that we believe in our mind that are very different than what we, we practice in life or vice versa. And Thomas Jefferson is just an example of it. And behind every sin that we commit is a lie that we have bought into that brings that sin into existence. I think about the lies I was raised with. And I just want to talk. And, and by the way, not, not everything we were taught were lies growing up. A lot of what we taught were truths. But mixed in with the truths are these lies. And I think about the lies I was raised with. I mean, I was raised in Mississippi. I went to school, elementary school, in the 60s. I went to an all-white 
school. Why an all-white school? Because you don't dare mix the races. God is against the mixing of the races. You know, why did slavery against? Slavery, why did slavery exist in, in the world? Slavery existed because of the curse of Ham. I remember hearing that preached and hearing that taught. Now, first of all, you need to understand there's no curse of Ham in the Bible. If you're sitting there going, sure there is. No, there's not. There's a curse of Canaan, Ham's son. You see, Noah didn't curse his son. He cursed his grandson. And why did he curse Canaan? He cursed Canaan because the Israelites would eventually take over what land? Canaan's land. You see, it wasn't the African-American race or the African race that was cursed. It was the Perizzites. It was the Hittites. It was the Canaanites. It was the Amorites. It, were the, it was the group of people that lived in what is today Israel. That's who was cursed. But boy, what an easy way to take a curse out of the Bible and lie about it so that you could enslave an entire race. I grew up in an all-white church. Why an all-white church? Because my black brothers and sisters didn't like worshiping with white brothers and sisters, and they liked to worship their way, and we liked to worship our way, and that's okay with God. I don't know of a more ungodly lie that's ever been perpetrated on the church than that one. There is no way you can come out of Paul's writings and believe for one second that God wants people separated instead of coming together as one. And yet I was fed the lie. And early in my life believed it. You see, that's the problem with lies. Hebrews 3.13, But encourage one another daily as long as it's called a day so that none of you may be hardened by sins. Notice that word up there, deceitfulness. Sin's lies. Sin's got a way of getting in there and hardening us against the truth, the only thing that can set us free. And so when John began writing his letter, he said, listen, you need to know something about Jesus. Jesus, when he came, came from the Father full of grace and truth. Why is that so important? You turn down just a couple of verses. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. Isn't the law truthful? It is. But the problem with the law is the law can't fix lies. It can punish them. It can't fix them. And the only way to fix it was to, for Jesus to come into the world. That's when Jesus came he said to the apostles, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is a paradigm here that you need to see. He begins by saying, I'm the way. There was something about what Jesus taught, something about what Jesus did, that said to the world of his day, this guy is different. So different that when you turn over to the book of Acts, Paul identifies himself as a follower of the way. You see, long before the church was called the church, long before the church was called Christians, long before we were called the church of Christ, we were called simply the way. And the way of Jesus leads to the truth or goes right through. It is the truth that creates it. 
Which is why Jesus is always described as the one who testifies to the truth. Look at what he said to Pontius Pilate. The reason I was born, came into the world, was to testify about truth. That's how important truth is. And so when you believe the truth and you get in the way of Jesus, then you enter into a life, a life that is the light of mankind, John says, and a life that Jesus says you can have to the full the more your mind is transformed by the truth. Way, truth, life. It's what Jesus is all about. But here's the problem. What is preventing the world from accepting the life that Jesus Christ offers? What is it that stops the truth? You see, when I was a teenager, first getting started preaching, I thought that if you could quote enough scripture, if you could teach enough Bible, that you could convert anyone to following Jesus. And I remember telling, you know, people in the church, one day I want to know so much of the Bible that, that I could convert anyone. And someone reminded me, you know Jesus couldn't do that, right? I mean, there were people that even Jesus couldn't convert. And you want to talk about a dose of humility? That one will get your attention. But what is it that prevents truth from getting inside, getting planted in our hearts and minds, and transforming us? I want to suggest there's two things. First of all are these preconceptions that are based on lies. A preconception, according to Webster, is simply a preconceived idea or a prejudice. In other words, you have been raised at an early age to, be, to believe certain things about certain topics. I mean, and you could fill in the blank. I mean, John Michael will tell you right fast, your view of marriage is built upon what you observe in your parents' marriage, which is why those of us who do premarital counseling will sit down and say, tell me about your, your family and how you were raised. Tell me about how your parents dealt with conflict. Tell me about how your parents looked at money. Tell me how your parents... And you just fill in the blank. Les Chapman was shaped by the preconceived ideas that I learned watching my parents. Both good and bad. And oftentimes, I don't even know that's where I learned it from. Which is why you've got to dig it up. You've got to go in and say, why in the world is your attitude, guys, about women the way it is? Maybe you need to look at your dad's attitude. Why is it, ladies, your, your attitude about this particular subject the way it is? Look at your mother's attitude or someone else influential in your life. And so we all enter the world with all of these preconceived ideas. I love the story of Jonah. Jonah is this prophet of the Old Testament. We all know Jonah. You know, uh, we, we sing songs in BBS about Jonah being swallowed by the you know, whale three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. But what we don't notice is Jonah's attitude. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh, one of the large cities, great cities of the Assyrians. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before us. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Nineveh's this way, Jonah heads that way. Why? Because of his preconceived ideas. You see, Jonah hated the Assyrians hated them. 
He had been taught all of his life that the Assyrians are the bad guys. The Assyrians are the ones who would come down, they would take the northern tribes, they would take them off into captivity, and they would disappear forever. I mean, that's who the Assyrians were. The Assyrians are the bad guys. And here, for some reason, is God giving them a chance to repent. God, have you lost your mind? And Jonah says, no, I'll, I'll not go. And you know the story. God throws him in the water. A fish swallows him. Three days and three nights, he repents. But he doesn't repent right here. After he goes and preaches and they respond, he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Wow. Now, I have to admit, there's been a couple of Sundays I've left church and kind of felt this way. Joking, I haven't. You know, you read of Jonah and you're like, what in the world has him so angry? And the answer is very simple. Lies can only be overcome by replacing them with the truth, and Jonah's not letting God do that. Now, I want you to notice another problem. Not only are there preconceived ideas, and, and by the way, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy, how? By the truth. And Jesus says, your word is truth. I mean, lies have got to be replaced with truth. That's the first thing. These preconceived ideas, they've got to be replaced with truth. But then the second problem, and by the way, the Holy Spirit will come and guide us, spirit of truth, into all truth. And the second problem is the emotions wrapped up in the preconceived ideas. You see, it's one thing for us to believe something. It's something else to wrap that belief in all kinds of emotions. And we all do it. I mean, we've all got certain beliefs that we have that are surrounded and protected by these emotions that will not let God penetrate them. Let's go back to Jonah. Not only can our minds be subverted by lies, but so can our emotions. And before I go to Jonah, let's look at Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? I mean, that heart is constantly a barrier to letting God in. And so Jonah hated the Ninevites more than he loved God. I want you all to let that sink in just for a moment. He had his preconceived ideas. Assyrians are evil. They, they're not worth saving. That's his preconceived idea. God's got to replace that one. But then his emotions around that pre, preconceived idea, because they are so evil, I hate them. And his hatred is more than his love for God. You remember the last chapter of Jonah? It's hot. Jonah's sitting there seeing what God's going to do. Of course, the, the Ninevites repent, and Jonah's up there, and he's furious about that. And he's sitting there pouting in the heat when all at once a vine grows up. Vine grows up, it, it suddenly forms a shade. I mean, it grows up in one day, forms a shade. He's sitting there finally in the shade going, finally, that night a worm comes, eats the plant. The plant dies, and the next morning, Jonah is furious. And then God comes to him. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant dying? And look at what Jonah says. 
It is, and I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Woo! Emotions. Powerful emotions. Same emotions we have about all kinds of lies we've believed in. That we don't want to let go. God shows him the absurdity of what he says. You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Plant 120,000 people plus all these animals. And that's the power of a lie. That's the power of a prejudice. That's the power of emotion we're so wrapped up in that we can't see, even if it's right there in front of us, and God's talking to us. Which is why when Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's time to examine yourself. We as Christians have got to be people who step back and ask the hard questions. What lies have I believed into? What emotions are tied up with them? Do I love God more than the lie? Do I love God more than a relationship? Do I love God more than a job? Do I love God? You fill in the blank. And what you will find is the deceptive power of Satan himself. I battle this on a daily basis. Lies that I was raised with all kinds and all areas of my life. Many I don't even know I, I, I have bought into. And trying to identify them and trying to weed them out and try to replace them with the truth of God's word. That's what God's calling us to. And the hardest thing in the world for all of us is to pray this prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. God, I want to be open to your guiding. I want to become who you want me to be. Tear the lies out. Replace them with their tr your truth. And make me into your image for the world. I don't know where you are in this process. And I know I've thrown a lot at you in just a few moments. But let me tell you, it's time we deal with the lies that so affect. Because as long as we're sinning, we're still believing in lies. Which means that even on the day we die, there'll still be those falsehoods in our lives, in our core being, that we're still working on. But hopefully by the grace of God, and because we have become His children, He'll save us. And that's His promise. A life that is real life. If that's the life you're looking for, why don't you respond to the invitation this morning, right now, as we stand and sing.